Hello and welcome to the Happier at Work podcast with your host, Aoife O'Brien. The podcast for anyone who wants to be happier at work. We spend so much of our time at work. Everyone deserves to be happier at work. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Emiliana Simon-Thomas from the Greater Good Science Centre in UC Berkeley in California. And we talk all about happiness at work. We have a great discussion all about what it means to be happier at work and what drives happiness at work. And Emiliana shares some wonderful tips as well, some practical tips that can be implemented straight away. Uh, So let's get started. Welcome, Emiliana, to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm delighted you're my first American guest to have on the show. So this is uh, this is pretty exciting for me. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners and talk a little bit about your background? Yes, thank you, Aoife. Um, what an honor to be your first American. I hope that I represent well and convey a spirit of friendliness and cooperativeness (laughs) and meaningful contribution to the ideas that you're focused on. So I'm Emiliana Simon-Thomas, and I am the science director at the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley in Berkeley, California. And um, the Greater Good Science Center, uh, what we do is track the recent research on how valuable our social connections our sense of generosity and cooperation, and our contributions to community or belonging are to our health and well-being. And in my role, I teach the materials that relate to those topics and study the impact of either learning that content or practicing, doing exercises or activities or behaviors out in the world that are consistent with these themes. Um, And recently, actually a year ago, I launched a series of online courses on the edX platform, uh, which is a place where you can participate in what are called massive open online courses. And the courses that we launched are focused on happiness at work. Uh, It's a professional certificate series, so there are three of them. The Foundations of Happiness at Work, Mindfulness and Resilience to Stress at Work, and Empathy and Emotional Intelligence at Work. And really, these sort of um, summarize and culminate the extant literature on where the real factors lie, which contribute to and support and reliably predict um, a person's level of happiness at work. Brilliant. And what are the key findings? Like what are what makes someone happier at work? Yeah, great question. And kind of the million dollar question. <laughs> and, and the reason is, is because there's lots of ideas. And if you go to a sort of self-help section of a bookstore and the work subsection, you'll find books about engagement, about making progress, about thriving, about resilience, about mindfulness, Uh, the list goes on. And one of the things I did in trying to make sense of this rich and uh, strong, empirically strong literature was develop a an operating framework, uh, a way that we could navigate all of these different ideas in in one fluid way so that we didn't have to align ourselves with one particular 
approach or strategy. What we know about happiness in general is that individuals respond in different ways to different strategies, different techniques, different environmental circumstances. It has a lot to do with who they are to begin with, what their life experiences have been, and what kind of context they're living in. And the same goes for work. So it, what we came up with was, was a kind of multifaceted framework, which includes a few different main ideas. And, and just for convenience, uh, the, the words themselves spell out the word perk, P-E-R-K. And perk is often what, what we use to refer to you know, something nice that happens at work, some special thing that you're, you're happy to, to um, have access to or a privilege. And so what PERC stands for, the P stands for purpose, the E stands for engagement, the R stands for resilience, and the K stands for kindness. And again, the reason we created this framework was to make it easy to remember, like what are the key factors? It's not just one strategy, it's not just one idea that matters, it's multiple. And how can we think about accentuating any one of these or all of them in a, a kind of strategic roadmap kind of way based on our own uh, set of, of employees or workers in a particular organization? Um, what, what can we do individually for ourselves uh, and what can we do in relationship to others to benefit teams and collaborative projects or endeavors? And what can an organization do structurally to really uplift employees and, and the, the, the people who are served by an organization such that happiness is, 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 is more within reach to, to everyone who is a stakeholder for a particular, for a particular organization or workplace. So, so we, we start with this, this PERC model, purpose, engagement, resilience, kindness, and under each of those pillars is a series of findings that uh, support the importance of that idea and multiple strategies or techniques that can benefit any one of those avenues uh, in the service of raising happiness at work. Great. I mean, that's so, so interesting. And all of those areas are really pertinent and they're really kind of they're getting a lot of um, press, for want of a better word, uh, around each of those areas. Do you want to talk in a little bit more detail about what what it means to you? So what does purpose mean to you? What does engagement mean to you, etc.? Yes. Well, so I think about purpose as being the sense that you're doing something that matters and that's not harming anyone and is making a meaningful contribution. So it matters to you, meaning it aligns with your personal values. Uh, it's not causing harm or destruction or hurting others. And it's doing something that makes a difference in the world to something tr that transcends yourself, that transcends self-interest. So there's kind of multiple elements of, of what it means to have a sense of purpose at work. Um, engagement, uh, it, it's, it's interesting. Engagement partly is a reflection of how easy it is and how frequently you feel positive emotions in the workplace. So do you feel um, amusement in, in friendly uh, interactions with your colleagues or the, the clients that you serve? Uh, do you experience a sense of, of pride about having made an achievement? Do you feel grateful for the, um, 
various chances that you have to advance in your career or learn something new as a function of the work that you're doing. So it's partly uh, that, really how often you feel positive emotions. And then there's kind of a flow element to engagement. And by flow, I mean that you have these periods of time where you feel totally immersed in what you're doing. You feel uh, so interested and um, plugged in to whatever the task at hand is that you, you lose track of time and feel um, just energized by the whole experience. And, and there's a rich research literature on, on, on flow and how valuable it is. And um, it, it does kind of separate slightly from simply positive emotions, largely because it's, it's longer in duration. A positive emotion happens and then, and then goes away because it's meant to serve a particular time-limited function, whereas flow is a little bit more like a mood or an enduring state. So those two things really make up what many of us or, or many researchers think of as, as, as engagement. Um, uh, the most popular scale for measuring engagement defines it uh, uh, as having three main facets, um, vigor, commitment, and um, uh, sort of um, being engaged, sort of a flow-like state, right? Being immersed. Yeah. Um, and so those all really happen when people uh, frequently and easily experience positive emotions in the workplace. When, you, when you're feeling good about what you're doing, um, you're, you're likely to have those experiences that people uh, typically define as engagement. Resilience is managing the setbacks and the difficulties uh, with grace at work. So every workplace is gonna have situations where um, projects fail, individual efforts um, go astray, um, things happen that are outside of the organization that um, cause challenges uh, or perhaps lead to the failure of a particular initiative or product launch and organizations that can rebound from that and individuals who are working in organizations who also have the ability to learn from failure, to grow from the difficulties that they encounter at, in the workplace, just end up in the bucket of, of happiness uh, more easily. Um, and there are multiple strategies, although many of them lie in the space of kind of awareness practices or um, what, what many would refer to as mindfulness practices for enhancing one's resilience in the workplace. And then the last uh, pillar, which is often the least focused on uh, amongst researchers, is what we call kindness. And kindness is essentially the feeling of trust, of supportiveness, of collaborative intent, um, of investment in social good that is, is characteristic of individuals, of teams, and organizations uh, at large. So uh, there are multiple strategies for, for strengthening kindness. Oftentimes when I am speaking with organizations, they'll say things like, um, we really uh, are successful because of our teams. Teams are so important to our, to our progress, but nobody ever taught us how to work in teams. 
And the how to work in teams really is what is the, um, the, the fodder of this space, kind, the space of kindness at work. How do we interact with each other in ways that are most constructive, that lead to success and um, productivity and efficiency, that um, minimize the deleterious impact of, of conflict? Uh, this doesn't mean that we try to suppress or avoid conflict. It means that when conflict happens, which it inevitably will because it's part of progress and, and momentum when humans are working together, how can we use that conflict to leverage growth and um, progress instead of you know, the alternative, which is you know, holding grudges or just um, projects falling apart or being canceled or really just slowed down dramatically by people's interpersonal dynamics. So kindness is, is to me, a quite interesting bucket. Oftentimes people think of kindness as being a soft skill, being something that's optional alongside all of the other hardline metrics that workplaces need to worry about. But when you review the literature closely, actually places where kindness is more characteristic of the individuals and the organization are more successful. Their profitability is better. Their um, uh, stock uh, value is higher. Um, their, their, their people are, are happier. And so ultimately um, this, this becomes an area that, that I, I'm interested in focusing focusing on, largely because it doesn't get as much attention amongst the community uh, at large already. I was going to say, of those four pillars, kindness is probably the one that stands out most to me because it's not really talked about. And, you know, I can absolutely relate to, to the concepts that you're talking about, and especially in relation to how to work in teams and dealing with conflict. So I suppose my my big question around that is what's what's the answer is it around communication is it is it um bringing conflict to front and center so that it's spoken about and that it's transparent like wh- like how what's the first step Yeah well the first step probably isn't delving directly into conflict cuz that's a little more challenging <laughs> Often the first step is learning how to really listen to each other really um, understand and pay attention to what another person is communicating in any given moment at work. I think it's quite frequent that people in workplaces are excessively preoccupied by a hyper busy scheduled calendar and lots and lots of information um, sort of coming their way continuously which makes it hard for them to look up and make eye contact and actually hear what a colleague or um, client is saying to them. Um, We're all quite vulnerable to mind wandering. And this is while we're hearing someone else talk towards us, we in our own minds are reflecting on something that happened earlier in the day that maybe we feel a little insecure about or the grocery list that we um, are responsible for, for another social (laughs) uh, obligation that we're responsible for, Um, the other list of of job tasks that we are conscientious of and concerned about um, successfully accomplishing on a given day. 
when we do this, when we multitask, when we're in social interactions, we're simply not actually successfully communicating uh, to the degree that is most helpful for working in teams. Uh, when we're ruminating in a self-focused way while we're interacting with other people, we are less empathic, which means we don't really even digest or uh, register signals that are often nonverbal that other people are communicating to us about what matters, about what's most important in this uh, work-related conversation. Um, so really learning how to, to listen, to empathize with others, to ask questions that um, highlight what is successful and what's promising, rather than letting conversations um, always kind of meander towards what could lead to people feeling self-critical or criticized. Um, this doesn't mean, again, that we're trying to remove criticism or um, constructive feedback from interpersonal dynamics, but it means that we could do a better job of bringing in um, what is often referred to as appreciative inquiry, right? What has gone well in our social dynamics, in our teams, in our collaborations at work and in organizations? Doing that kind of work where we're really, again, learning how to interact and communicate with each other in genuine and constructive ways is really the first start to kindness. Um, once we've kind of gotten through that space, and I don't mean to make it sound easy or brief, uh, it's something that takes work just like any other skill or habit that you might want to take on. Um, there are ways of um, kind of working with the more complex interpersonal dynamics like conflict. And what we know from the research is that workplaces uh, tend to adopt three main approaches to conflict, and one of them is total avoidance, right? If people start to disagree, everybody kind of gets quiet and walks the other way. Um, what we know happens when that's the approach or that's the cultural norm is that people feel uh, sort of low-lying stress. It is... Um, it's a source of anxiety, of chronic, of chronic anxiety in the workplace. Um, the other way or another way is a kind of domineering approach, which is to put the uh, responsibility of making decisions about any dis disagreement on one high ranking uh, person in the organization. And, and that person essentially just basically lays down the law and tells everybody how things are gonna be. Um, this domineering approach to conflict management is also stressful. Um, it also makes people feel uh, a less sense of self-determination or agency or self-efficacy, right? They don't feel empowered uh, as individuals in the workplace. And we know those are really important to happiness at work. If you just feel like a cog in the wheel who's being controlled by some higher power that uh, hasn't deserved that status um, through a relationship of trust, um, it can be quite dispiriting to, to people in the workplace. So those are the two strategies that are quite common and that really don't work. They're really ineffective. The strategy that does work, and this is work that's primarily led by Karsten Derdru, um, is the integrative or problem-solving approach. And this is when we do encounter conflict, we really make a point of figuring out what the challenges, like what, what each person in the conflict is hoping for, 
where their needs are not being met and how together we can come up with an integrative or um, collaborative solution or path that addresses everyone's needs to the extent that it's possible. Clearly, some will make compromises and some needs will be met more than others, but in the long term, there's the aspiration that conflict will be handled in a way that, again, acknowledges everyone's needs, creates an environment of what Amy Edmondson calls psychological safety, right? This is, I can say something if I'm upset or I feel like I've been um, uh, dis disrespected or, or not acknowledged appropriately in my perspective on how something should be. Um, I should be able to safely say that and know that that's going to lead to a conversation where one way or another at the end of the day, my sentiments will be heard and understood, not necessarily the expectation that everything that I want will be given, but instead that there will be consideration and conversation and uh, some kind of integrative um, roadmap that, that emerges from the conflict. So that, that's what we know about conflict at work and, and, and what can be most useful for, for um, kind of uh, supporting happiness, knowing that conflict is is going to arise and that it's inevitable. Um, the the specific skills that help people actually uh, in, encounter or relate to a conflict in an integrative or problem solving way aren't so different from some of the skills that we started with in 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 making sure that we are having meaningful and authentic and generative interactions with people. It comes down to getting better at empathizing, right? Do Can I empathize with the other person's perspective? Can I really understand where they're coming from? Can I home, home in on, on the common values that we're both uh, aspiring to, to meet in this uh, endeavor, what, whatever project or idea or initiative that we may have some disagreement about, there's some common thread that we agree upon. So, so figuring out what that is, um, listening to each other, when conflicts escalate to the point of people feeling angry, there are practices that focus on helping individuals actually, um, kind of cultivate compassion as a, as a means to recovering or regulating their own anger, their interpersonal anger. So instead of sort of harboring ill will and hostility, <clears throat> can uh, you develop the skill to actually extend compassion to someone who you disagree with to a degree that, um, that you, you can relate to them in a constructive way rather than, again, have continued, sustained, and escalating conflict. Great. There's, there's quite a lot to take in there, but it's all so, so interesting. And I suppose my burning question, and maybe this is the million-dollar question, is, um, you know, how, how do companies actually do this? Is it a case of running an ongoing program and and measuring the effectiveness or like what are some some of the practical steps that companies can actually take to become or to embody these skills and become happier at work yeah well that uh, terrific question and one that we really care about providing some 
really uh, kind of tangible response for one of the key missions of the Greater Good Science Center is to be as practical as possible, um, not just ideological. That said, um, any for any kind of um, initiative or culture shift <clears throat> to be successful, we really need uh, people in the organization to be aware of the issue and of the program. Um, there needs to be some knowledge and understanding of the ideas and some um, kind of and, and some buy-in, some intentional buy-in, right? Individuals have to kind of want to do this for it for, for any sort of um, uh, training program or culture shift or even widespread structural change to an organization to be successful. So our recommendations really hinge on all three of those those entities. First of all, if a company really wants to um, kind of foster or boost happiness, it there there needs to be some visible campaign and uh, commitment to, to the idea. And one way to do that is, which maybe people already are familiar with, is you know branding. Hey, we care about happiness. Happiness matters to us as a company, not just because we think associating our product with pictures of happy people will lead to better sales. No, it's that we really value happiness of our workforce as crucial as a metric of, of organizational success, just like the bottom line metrics that we might typically measure, profitability, absenteeism, um, any, anything else that you would put on that list, you know, healthcare expenses, happiness has to be on that list. And that is a demonstration of an organizational commitment. Uh, it raises awareness about the idea. What that often involves is, 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 actually measuring and assessing happiness at a workplace. And, and that means sort of creating some kind of survey or other approach to actually getting a number that says, okay, here's where we are today. Um, starting here, we're, we're on a mission or we're on a path to trying to move that line in the upward direction. And so that's the awareness piece. The knowledge piece really comes with trainings. Uh, can an organization say, okay, now everybody's going to participate in some kind of deliberate training or uh, be provided with a coach with the expertise in the skills and experiences that really drive up happiness at work so that they can become uh, well-versed in the literature and the practical tools. And then finally, intentional buy-in we hope comes with the knowledge and the awareness. Um, but I'll, I'll sort of go back to the knowledge piece because um, that involves these really, these really practical steps. So uh, I, I mentioned earlier the idea that um, there is a practice that focuses on sort of transforming anger in, uh, in, by transforming anger into a sort of more affiliative state through practicing compassion. That's a pretty advanced strategy that comes uh, in the space of trying to figure out ways to make an organization have a healthier relationship to interpersonal conflict. But backing up, um, there's a vast literature on the importance of gratitude in workplaces. And so if a workplace says, okay, we're going for happiness, we really want to raise the needle on this measurement, the first thing we're going to try is upskilling gratitude for everyone here. 
Um, and we'll start with a, a, a gratitude challenge, which means that for the next two weeks, every day, we want everyone here to make a point of saying thank you to somebody else in the, who they encounter at work, but saying thank you in a particular way. Say thank you by describing what the person did, uh, acknowledging the effort that they put into what it is that they did that benefited you, and explaining how it benefited you. So it takes maybe 14 seconds instead of, you know, one and a half seconds. Uh, you know, one and a half seconds is, hey, thanks, which often re regrettably doesn't happen. What we know from survey data is that gratitude is least often expressed and felt in workplaces uh, compared to all other places where gratitude uh, is, is, is apparent in people's lives. So bringing it back in, right? Bringing it back in makes a big difference. What we know research-wise is that when people uh, are thanked by a boss, it is actually more powerful in terms of their sustained effort and productivity than a monetary bonus or a gift certificate for a restaurant. Um, so gratitude is a way to kind of incentivize and motivate people. Gratitude is a way to strengthen bonds and build trust between people. And it can be as simple as just, again, cultivating the habit of saying it more often. Some companies will do like a, a deliberate sort of creative exhibit. They'll have a gratitude chalkboard or uh, depending on a particular seasonal initiative, have a, a you know, an, an artistic installation where people are writing down what they're grateful for and posting it on a wall. There are lots of different ways to do it. Um, uh, I, I think that the interpersonal approaches tend to be more powerful, but often researchers will suggest to, that people keep a gratitude journal. Just start writing down regularly what, for what, and towards whom you feel grateful, just as a way, again, to sort of bring that habit and that way of thinking into your awareness more robustly. Um, there's a large literature on the benefits of mindfulness at work. Uh, mindfulness is a way of really paying attention to the moment that you're in and getting less vulnerable to mind wandering and distraction and reflexive internal narratives that can be harmful to happiness. In workplaces, people tend to be quite self-critical and what we know about the relationship between self-criticism and goals is that people who are trying to achieve goals who are more self-critical are less successful than people trying to achieve goals who are less self-critical. Yet, there's, uh, and this may be different in Ireland, but certainly in the US, there's a, there's a high premium and kind of proudness in being sort of perfectionistic, which is highly associated with being self-critical. Idea that I can't, I can't really appreciate or value who I am or what I can do unless it's absolutely perfect and better than everyone else. And ultimately that, that tends to be quite destructive. And, and mindfulness is a way to start to notice those habits of thought that can be destructive, both in terms of our own a sense of ease and wellness in a given workday, and also in our interpersonal dynamics. We can have quite harmful reflexive judgments about other people that have come to us through, you know, a life of practice and exposure that ultimately when they come under our own sort of reflective scope, we go, oh, I don't really want to think that way. I don't want to uh, judge every person who I encounter at work as a 
as a person who threatens my status. That, that actually is not very helpful and, and is making it more difficult for me to achieve what I'm striving for in my collaborative and personal endeavors. So those are two big spaces that are quite practical and there's a lot of tools out there for practicing gratitude, bringing gratitude into workplaces, for also introducing mindfulness into a workplace. Leaders, it, it, it's incumbent upon them to actually walk the talk so it, it never works for an organization to have a leader come out and say, you know, in a fancy TED talk, hey, we really want you to be happy and we, you know, we want you to start saying thank you to each other and practicing mindfulness. But, um, you know, I'm not going to do it because, you know, I'm fine. I'm already really successful. That doesn't work. Um, people see right through that. Leaders have to embody the same uh, skills, practices, and um, kind of sentiments that they're requesting of their organizations. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's so much there that I'd love to pick up on, um, especially what you're saying about gratitude. You're so right. Like it's it's something that crops up in in all aspects of life. I'm um, taking part in the gratitude challenge myself at the moment, but on a personal side. So it's kind of picking up well, what are the things to be grateful for in my life? But I never really thought about it from a work perspective, if I'm if I'm totally honest, you know, it's I never really thought about it in that way. Now, there was a couple of things you said. So it's it's being grateful and saying thank you to people in a meaningful way. So not only saying thanks, but explaining thank you. You know, what is what is the impact that you have had and how specifically did it help me? Um, so I really, really like that. And something you mentioned earlier was being grateful for the opportunities that work provides as well, whether that's opportunities to learn, to develop, and um, maybe the social interaction, that kind of thing as well. So really, really interesting. I loved what you had to say as well about leaders. You can't just be kind of standing at the top of your I don't know, pulpit or whatever you want to say, but you can't just be kind of standing up there as, as a leader and saying, oh, I'm all good. Thanks. You know, I'm, I'm highly successful already. I don't need to be grateful for X, Y, Z. No, it, it, it really is about leaders embodying the values that they're expecting of of their employees as well. Um, what you said about perfectionism, then I don't think that's exclusive to the US. I think that's a, it's a huge problem, probably globally um suffer from it myself definitely as well or have done in the past but it is something I'm becoming really aware of and I read Barry Schwartz's book recently The Paradox of Choice and in wow. it he talks about maximizers and satisficers and it made me realize that I've been a maximizer for quite a lot of my life <laughs> in a lot of different areas of my life so I'm trying to always pick the right words to say trying to always have everything exactly right and you know that has connotations of of um perfectionism and yeah. that in turn then and I talk a lot about this um you know I've, I've been on a couple of radio shows in Ireland and, and written a few articles and done some talks on imposter syndrome and that kind of has relationship to perfectionism as well so if you tend to be a perfectionist and you're really self-critical I really loved what you said about self-criticism and goals because I never thought about it that way and it makes a huge amount of sense. So if you're if you're trying to be successful, it's about thinking and being positive about yourself and, and congratulating yourself on how far you've come already in trying to achieve those goals and that in itself will drive success rather than being self-critical and 
then you become less successful than you you had hoped to be. Emiliana, what would you say is the biggest challenge that organizations face when it comes to happiness in work? Oh, I think organizations really struggle with the culture shift, um, with the notion that happiness is under the guise of their responsibility. Um, I think that there's a long tradition of workplaces espousing the notion that people should leave their baggage at home, right? That happiness is for after work, right? That it's called work for a reason. Um, And the implication there is that it's unpleasant and um, people should just deal with that. Regrettably, I feel like all of that is a means for justifying a historic command and control sort of um, structure of workplaces where it was more common for employees to not have a um, uh, kind of meaningful or uh, sort of impactful role, but rather just to be working along a a line, uh, screwing screwing lids on jars or doing work that doesn't actually have a clear connection to the larger um, whole of contribution. Um, I, I, I'm, I think that that idea, that model is, is just outlived its, its potential. And regrettably, the kind of cultural assumptions underneath it are still quite common in workplaces. And, and that's the first thing I think workplaces really are going to um, have to grapple with is, is, is redefining what it means to be successful as an organization in such a way that being successful means that they're contributing to the happiness of the people who are in the organization and also assuming that they're providing some kind of service or product to humans or to the world, um, that that also improves happiness or, or, or at least doesn't harm it. Um, I think the razor focus on on profit margins, on extracting as much time and expertise out of people as possible. Um, it, again, it, it, we're realizing it just doesn't work. Um, Morton Hansen, who is a professor here at UC Berkeley in the School of Business, uh, wrote a book called Great at Work. And one of his most uh, profound observations uh, that has to do with happiness at work is that working excessive hours actually doesn't predict greater productivity. That people can, you know, he measures individuals working, you know, 20 hours, 30 hours, 40 hours, 50 hours, 60 hours, and somewhere around 45, the relationship completely tapers off. There is no benefit. And in fact, once you get up in the 55, 60 range, people's productivity starts to go back down. So, you know, we have this kind of idea that, you know, there's a linear relationship between how much time we put in and how effective and productive we're going to be. And that that really is the secret to our happiness. If we're really effective and productive and we raise our status in the organization, we escalate our or or accelerate our careers, that that's going to bring us happiness. But really the culture shift to realizing that actually happiness comes first and that when we're happier to begin with, we're going to appreciate and recognize and realize those benefits that we 
aspired to that we thought were going to bring us happiness second. So it's worth it as an organization to invest in happiness at the front end rather than buy into this narrative, this historic narrative that at the end of your life, when you get your special prize for having worked for 50 years in an organization or, and are retiring, that that's when you can relax and be happy. That's just erroneous. And um, that, that's really, I feel like, the biggest challenge. Um, I do think that busyness is a big challenge. Also, I think that particularly in healthcare settings or in technology sectors, that the culture of hyper busyness is, is quite harmful. Uh, people never taking time off, people never disconnecting, people feeling obliged 24-7 to be responsive to emails or mess text messages about work. Um, this is quite harmful to happiness and, again, is sort of part of the culture shift um, that, that really needs to happen if, if, if organizations are going to be successful in, in raising the bar of happiness within and uh, in relationship to their impact. It's it's so funny that you should say that because I I wasn't sure whether to kind of bring it up at the start because it's a it's a it's a tricky question. Is there such thing as being happy at work? And obviously, you'll know my thoughts on that. I absolutely I think it's true. I think you can be happy at work, um, because of all of those those kind of reasons that you went through earlier. So it's really interesting that you say that that culture shift and the shift in mentality is key to actually. That's kind of the first step towards empowering people to be happier at work is believing that they can be really Absolutely. yeah um and that work shouldn't be this this kind of unpleasant place that you go into and you know we we have this thing in Ireland where you talk about the fear you have you feel fear on a Sunday evening before you go into work on a Monday because you just you're really dreading going in you have this sense of dread hanging over you because you have to face going into work on Monday and it's a really really terrible state of affairs yeah, absolutely. I mean, wh what we know is that people are least happy at work. Um, when we measure happiness levels uh, uh, throughout the day and in different contexts, they're least happy at work. Um, people really um, believe and feel like happiness in life is is quite important. We want to, you know, when you ask anyone, if you just stop people on the street and you know say, what what do you want? You know, what does it mean to be human? Um, quite often, the answer is, I just want to be happy. Um, yet we have this mentality that, well, even though I want to be happy, it's my expectation that I'm going to spend 50% of my waking hours, right, which is roughly what we do as full-time employees in workplaces or even self-employed, if not more than that, I'm going to spend that much of my time being unhappy. <laughs> what we know biologically is that the nervous system doesn't work that way. We're not, we're, we're not, in a healthy nervous system, we don't bifurcate our, our, our awareness and experience of, of, of the world to be happy in one context that is quite, you know, highly, uh, uh, quite a big portion of our time and, and, and unhappy in another or happy in one and unhappy in another and expect them not to sort of bleed into each other. If we're unhappy at work all day, Trust me, there's spillover. And there are studies showing that people who are unhappy at work, people who experience conflict at work, then go home and are more vulnerable to conflict and despair back at home because they're sort of bringing that feeling. They're bringing that same orientation, that milieu, 
back into their home lives. Um, and, and we also know that when people successfully detach from work and engage in activities that are socially uh, uh, sort of interactive and creative and not work-related, they end up being happier at work and it also benefits their productivity. So it is important to consider that bi-directionality and imagine, well, how could I not just count on this notion of being miserable all day and then happy outside and try to sort of feed the, the direction of my happy outside into work, not acknowledging the fact that being miserable at work is also gonna make it harder for you to be happy outside of work. So why not just apply the same principles of, of what it means to be happy. And, and by happy, I just wanna really quickly be specific in saying that when I say happiness at work, I in, do not mean momentary positive emotions. I do not mean feeling uh, amused or feeling uh, entertained or feeling proud. Those are little, little like snippets of the experience that together contribute to what it means to be happy at work. But if somebody aspires to happiness at work by trying to string together a perpetual sequence of positive emotional experiences, uh, you know, games and snacks and, you know, special privileges and perks um, that are not the perks that I described earlier, um, that's not going to work. It actually becomes um, a, a, an impairment to their capacity to realize happiness at work. Happiness at work is broader. It's inclusive of the inevitable difficulties that, that we face at work, be they personal or interpersonal, and um, really hinge on our ability to manage those well and to grow and learn from them rather than uh, try to avoid them altogether. It's great. I'm really glad that you explained that because I was going to ask, you know, what when people talk about happiness, is it is it being content or like what specifically does it mean? Um, another thing I just wanted to highlight is uh, a few podcasts ago, I interviewed Andrew Barnes and he has set up a, a global charity called Four Day Week, um, which promotes working four days a week. So when you kind of refer to product productivity and saying after 45 hours, you know, it's, there's not really much point in, in working more than 45 hours. He's promoting the idea of working four days and four regular days. So like around eight hours a day um, for the same pay, because that actually increases productivity. So really, really interesting research that, that he's working on there. Hyper busyness. So you were saying that that's part of an overall culture shift. Is there anything that we can do? Is that related to reducing the number of hours that we're working? Is it actively turning off our mobile phones or, you know, because that's that's basically how we're accessible, whether we're checking emails or we're checking social media, we're always on, you know, what's yeah. what's the cure to hyper busyness? Yeah, well, first I'll say I'm a big fan of the work that Andrew Bynes is doing. I think partly for what it can contribute to happiness at work, but also because presumably uh, when people start working four-day weeks, there will be other opp employment opportunities as we um, we sort of distribute work to a greater number of people, um, which I think is quite valuable. So in terms of hyper-busyness, I think you listed two of the key strategies, one of them being having a decisive um, policy about, about work-related communication in an organization. This doesn't have to be draconian and, and related to punishment, but if everybody agrees like, hey, you know what? 
we're not going to um, expect responses to any work-related communication between the hours of, you know, uh, uh, 5.30 p.m. and 7.30 a.m., right? That's the time that we're not at work. And, and we can go ahead and communicate with each other during those times, but there's no expectation of a reply. And that's just how it is. So that's a first kind of policy level approach. And there are a couple companies who have tried this, who have basically kind of outlawed, um, uh, you know, off hour correspondence uh, that is work related. Again, not with the threat of punishment, but just with a clear cultural expectation. Um, and then the other approach, which you mentioned, is individuals. Individuals just deciding, hey, you know what? I'm not going to check my phone. I'm just not going to check it. Uh, or, or, you know, you can, what I do personally is I have a separate email address for my personal and family and friend related correspondence than I have for my work related email. And if I feel like I need to, touch base with somebody about a birthday party, I can do that without looking at my work-related email in the evening. And, um, and so it gives me the option of sort of staying detached and not feeling obliged or something like that fear that you described that, that is uh, common on a Sunday night, right? It doesn't matter what night is it, it is. If you open your work-related email at 9.30 and see four or five things that are time-sensitive, Trust me, this is going to put a dent in your capacity or opportunity for a restful night's sleep. Um, it's going to make you unavailable to the people who you share your household with if they ask you to have a conversation uh, at, you know, during that time frame. And all of those things are really, really important to your happiness. You know, we, we, we're learning more and more about the importance of sleep uh, in health and well-being, and that goes for, for how we're feeling in the workplace. Um, and again, our social relationships um, in, in all fronts and all aspects of life, we know are, you know, foundational to our capacity to experience happiness again, both in general and also in the workplace. So yeah, at some level it's incumbent upon us to figure out ways to detach, properly detach. I'm not going to interact with or expose myself to work-related correspondence during the hours. And in some ways it's a responsibility of, the organization to set the tone of, of, of allowing for and normalizing detaching from work. And then the last thing I'll say is, again, this is a little bit in the realm of, of leaders' uh, responsibility for them to decide, I'm not going to send out a time-sensitive email at 7 p.m., uh, again, of course, there have to be exceptions. Different kinds of occupations will need some more flexibility on that front. Um, 7 p.m. might be the right time of day to correspond for some shift work that, um, that, that for, for which that's the middle of the workday. Um, so, so it's not hard and fast, um, but there are certainly ways that leaders can own some of this opportunity space to support people's better balance, people's uh, uh, comfort in not holding themselves accountable or obliged to um, kind of stress-inducing work-related correspondence when they're not actually supposed to be at work.
Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, you mentioned uh, briefly about sleep there. Actually, uh, I have I have a podcast done. I spoke with a sleep expert as well. So in relation to how people can be happier at work by getting a better night's sleep. So it's interesting that you brought that up as well. Um, I just have one last question for you, Emiliana, and that is in relation yes. to what makes you happier at work. Yeah, such a great question. Um, I think for me, when I when I consider my day to day experience, the greatest sources of happiness start with my relationships with my colleagues. Um, we are all very horizontal in our dynamic. There's not a lot of power um, hierarchy, and because of that, I think everybody feels a sense of autonomy and agency in sort of um, collaboratively envisioning what our organization does and and what our impact can be. That means a lot to me. Um, We also have a a very flexible work uh, uh, sort of culture so that if I need to leave on a given day to um, go watch my daughter's basketball game, um, that's that's great. People are are happy that I am serving that role as a parent that matters in the greater scheme of what it means to be a human. There is not that's not frowned upon or criticized. Um, so I really appreciate the relationships that I have with my colleagues. I really appreciate the flexibility and the autonomy that I have. And then I think the third thing is my role here affords so much continued learning and that is remarkably valuable to me. Now I spend lots and lots of time reading uh, scientific articles about um, what matters most to people's well-being and every time I read one of them they're they're challenging, they're complex, they're sophisticated, uh, there's ever uh, increasing complexity of statistical methods and research methodologies. Um, I get to interact with lots of very smart people who are studying this space. And, and again, it, it really allows me to learn uh, uh, just on an ongoing fashion, um, which I find incredibly valuable and, and really um, when I look back and think about, you know, what is it and you know, what, what matters to me and what, what really drives my sense of well-being or happiness at work, my, my again, opportunity to, to learn and develop as a, as a person is, is a big piece of that. Yeah, that's so interesting. I can relate to all three of those. Absolutely. The, um, for me, being happy at work is about the connections that you form with other people. It's having that flexibility to not have kind of work interfere with your personal life but kind of have the two a little bit more blended maybe and then this whole idea of learning I mean I'm doing a master's in organizational behavior I and that really stimulates my thinking around all of these different areas um, and I really really enjoy it I really really love learning new things and uh, I suppose doing the podcast as well really helps to facilitate that and and all of the insights that people share with me as well so it's really really interesting thanks for sharing that yeah one thing I'll say about the work-life kind of topic is I often reject the phrase work-life balance and prefer to use the phrase work-life harmony uh, which I think matches what you just said about kind of finding a blend rather than considering work and life as sort of competing kind of uh, forces on, on on your sense of, of wellness as a person. So how can you bring them together in a way that that uh, just, just leads to a greater, greater sense of well-being and happiness? 
Absolutely. I love that phrase. I'm going to be borrowing that now from now on, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. Work-life it's harmony. Yours. Yeah. You can have it. Yeah. There is, um, because there is no, there is no such thing as balance. I mean, balance sound, make it sound like it's a balancing act that you, yep. you give a little bit, you take a little bit and it's never really fully in balance. So I really like that. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for your time today. I really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Really, really enjoyed our conversation. Wonderful. It's a great opportunity. Um, I would like to share that if anybody wants to delve more deeply into this space, um, as I mentioned at the very beginning on edx.org, you can search for happiness. And uh, myself and my colleague and co-instructor, Dacher Keltner, teach four classes, three which I mentioned that are specific to happiness at work, one that is a more general science of happiness class. They're all available. You can audit them for free or you can pay to get a a personalized certificate that proves that you actually did it. Um, We're so happy to have people participate in and learn from and shift their organizations and their own experiences at work in relationship to what we've tried to offer to the world um, to sort of uh, boost and foster happiness at work. Um, The Greater Good Science Center is also a wonderful resource, greatergood.berkeley.edu. What we do is write articles daily about the scientific findings, the most recent science of of well-being and happiness and across lots of different uh, sectors, including work. So um, we also have a Science of Happiness podcast. If, if, If you're a podcast listener, search for Science of Happiness. It's really fun. It's very practical. What we do is we invite a guest. We let them choose a practice, a happiness practice, like some of the ones that I mentioned during our conversation, and tell us what it was like and how it worked for them. And then we have a conversation with the scientists who actually published the work that validated the, the effectiveness of this particular practice. And um, all, all of it sort of in a nice little 20-minute chunks. So we have lots of ways that people can get involved, start to learn, kind of become more knowledgeable and aware of the opportunity space here. And maybe if we're lucky, um, lead to some intentional buy-in and willingness to actually uh, do something to, to serve happiness at work. Wonderful. That, the podcast sounds amazing. I, I definitely have to check that out as well. I like the whole idea of, you know, people actually putting into practice what has been, uh, you know, what's been proven by science and then coming back and talking about their experience and then talking to the scientists themselves who came up with the idea. So really, really like that concept. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. It was really nice to speak with you, Aoife. Your questions were spot on and really uh, gave me a chance to talk about what I'm really interested in. And and if you can't tell already, I, I do like talking <laughs> about this space. And so yeah. um, it's it's an opportunity and an honor. And um, I hope your listeners uh, benefit from, from our conversation. That was Emiliana Simon-Thomas the Greater Good Science Centre in UC Berkeley in California. So as you can imagine, I really, really enjoyed our chat with the whole team around happiness at work. I am going to summarise some of the key points that came out of our discussion. It's really interesting what you said about teamwork and the importance of kindness when it comes to teamwork and being happier at work. Uh, companies actually have better business results when people are kinder at work. Part of that is around communicating in a genuine and constructive way and also finding ways to work through conflict. So most companies use avoidance or domineering tactics 
but it's the integrative approach. So figuring stuff out together, problem solving together and coming up with challenges and creating a roadmap for how to overcome those challenges. She also mentioned about the importance of psychological safety. So that means that you feel safe to voice your opinion at work, that it's okay to say to someone that things actually aren't going well or that you don't agree with what they say, but that you feel empowered to actually say that and to have that conversation. A couple of the key steps towards creating a workplace that is happier is acknowledging initially that there is actually a problem. So that makes it much easier to get buy-in then for the solution to that problem in the first place. I found it fascinating what she said about gratitude and doing a gratitude challenge saying thanks to other people for how they've helped you in some way and taking that extra time to describe how they helped you to acknowledge the effort that they went to to help you and to explain how what they did for you has benefited you so explain what the impact of that was she said that being thanked by a boss is very motivating for employees and even more so than some monetary rewards that she mentioned. Getting in the habit of having a gratitude journal and being very specific about for what and towards whom you have that gratitude. She also mentioned about the power of mindfulness and really paying attention to the moment you're in. And I know I spoke to Stephen Downey, it's a couple of months ago at this stage since we had our discussion. But if you want to learn more about mindfulness, definitely check out that episode. I thought it was very interesting what she said as well about self-criticism and goals. So we are less likely to achieve our goals if we criticize ourselves on the way towards achieving them. So it's really about acknowledging how far you've come and celebrating the little milestones that you've had. Speaking of goals, I will be running a goal setting workshop for 2020 on the 9th of January in Dublin and the 16th of January in Galway together with Tracy Garrity, who is another coach. If anyone's interested in that, I will put the link to the tickets in the show notes. Another aspect of what we discussed was around this whole culture or mindset shift that work should be work and you're not going to be happy in work. Um, so shifting away from that idea um, towards an idea of that work contributes to your overall happiness and that employers should be contributing to the happiness of employees and to a certain degree to customers as well. We said that working longer hours doesn't necessarily increase productivity and this goes back to the whole concept of input versus output so input being the time that you dedicate to whatever it is that you're working on and the output being the impact that you have on the business or the results that you're actually getting from that time the idea of busyness and always being on is really detrimental to our happiness happiness is something that people want the most so if you ask people what do they want most people will say that they want to be happy but work is where we are the least happy. It's the responsibility of the companies to create a cultural expectation. So no out of, out of our emails or texts in relation to work. It's also our own personal responsibility. We should feel empowered to turn off our mobile phones so that we're not constantly distracted by work emails or texts. 
I really, really loved what she said about work-life harmony. And that's a phrase that I've started using instead of work-life balance. Um, I really, really like that approach as well. As always, if you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me on aoife at empowermentcoaching.ie. Definitely keep those emails coming. I always love to hear feedback or questions that you have about any of the podcasts. And I wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you. I know there's a lot of podcasts out there, so I really appreciate you listening to this one. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to the Happier at Work podcast with Aoife O'Brien. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and don't forget to rate and review the podcast.